Welcome to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and we are doing a special album intro episode. We started doing these before Lionheart, and now we're going into Never Forever, so we're going to be doing a special introduction to the album, all basic album information, things to look forward to, what we think of the songs, and I say we because... Who do we have here talking with me about this wonderful album that she said right before we started talking that this is her coffee? <laughs> Hi, my name's Zoe. Um, I'm a Kate Bush fanatic. I was on a lot of Lionheart episodes. Mm-hmm. And I meant when I said that it's my coffee is that I actually don't like coffee despite being a native New Yorker, which is blasphemous. <laughs> but when I listen to this album, like in the morning, on the way to work or school, it is what wakes, it wakes me up. It's like taking a shot of caffeine or something. So, and I have many other thoughts on this album because it's my second favorite of hers after the dreaming. And I ranted a lot about Lionheart being underrated. And I feel, I think Lionheart does deserve more like critical um, recuperation kind of, but never forever. I'm even more passionate about this album. Mm-hmm. This is, I love the dreaming the most, but this I feel is like my album. Like it's the closest to my heart and feels the most me. And I just love it and think, its reputation needs to be changed from it being the bridge album between earlier and later work to a masterpiece in its own right. You and I both have our favorite or is the dreaming followed by never forever. And this one, this is my second Mm -hmm. favorite Kate Bush album. I love it. It's so varied. And oh my goodness, I'm going to have a lot of hard time trying to keep the episodes down to an hour on these songs, (laughs) even more than on the dream. I feel you. No, I I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree because they're all so rich. And Mm -hmm. this album, just like literally every song sounds different. There's something for everyone. It's, It's just amazing and wild and spectacular and diva and I love it one of the reasons I love it so much is because I think vocally it's her best album Mm -hmm. and not everyone will agree with me on that but I think that her vocals are the strongest on this album out of any because she still has the very high pitched stuff from the previous two albums but also like the throatier muscular stuff from later especially the really raw ending of breathing it comes to mind so it's basically the perfect it's just the perfect vocal album for me I miss in her later work I miss her high pitch so I really appreciate it here and how it's mixed and varied and I feel you see her growing as vocalist but she still has the high pitch that I love so much and that makes people make fun of her so much and I still really love her her high pure soprano voice I've always liked it and yeah this one I feel like she's also like trying to do more things even more things with her voice than what she was doing before probably because she had more artistic freedom to just like go a little bit more wild yeah yeah i mean on this album and i can go more into detail which moments those are later but this album has my like my three two or three absolute Mm -hmm. favorite vocal moments of hers ever like there are just certain notes that she does in this album that completely blow my mind and even i've listened to it a million times i'll always rewind on the song to hear her hit these specific notes again because they're just so wild um, and so good and it's like how did a human do that? So let's see. Uh, so the album, kind of basic album information, like when was this released? Now let's, so this is her follow-up to Lionheart. Um, it was released like a year and a half after the tour of life was done, September 7th, um, 1980. It's 
funny because there are like reviews that say, oh my God, a year and a half, we waited so long. Kate was like, hold my beer. <laughs> you want to wait? Yeah, you all want to wait? We'll try 12 too. years, man. Oh, yeah. yeah, but it's also funny because, well, I find it's interesting that Sarnia's Lionheart, pretty much all of her albums are released in the autumn. So this was released September 7th, oh. and I think this, Hounds of Love and The Dreaming, were all released in September. So September is, like, such a fun month for me because I get to celebrate all, like, the anniversaries of all my favorite albums. Oh, interesting. It's always Kate, 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 when you're a Kate Bush fan, there are so many great holidays. There's Kate Miss on her birthday on <laughs> July 30th. You get to celebrate the anniversaries of her albums, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. And um, there's 420, which is obviously an international Kate Kush holiday. Of course. Um, so <laughs> there's just so many. It's being a Kate Bush fan. It's like the hol- the parting never ends. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm just kind of looking at the release dates of her other songs. Like the Red Shoes came out in November. And I remember when Ariel was released because mm-hmm. that was the first new f- album of hers I got right before I went to France in mm-hmm. late 2005. And 50 Words for Snow came out pretty late, too. Yeah, because she wanted that to be a winter album. Yeah, but But September in particular is a good month for Kate Bush fans. Mm-hmm. to celebrate and I mean this was and speaking of like things with, with Kate Bush um, she started recording this in September of 1979 so not too long after the uh, the tour of life mm-hmm. she, you know, she did her thing in April to May and then like, she took time off wrote, started writing new songs started doing the Kate Bush Christmas special and was recording woo! until uh, I know woo! May 1980 uh, recorded at, of course, Abbey Road Studios, who hasn't been there to record stuff, you know. Air Studios, which was where her uh, the Kick Inside was produced. And you know, speaking of producing, um, she actually started producing on this album. Woo! Big, very important moment here for women in music. Ding, very ding, important. Ding, ding. Hell yeah. She was, she's credited as a co-producer. Um, the other... Uh, producer is John Kelly, who I know produced uh, one of my favorite French pop singers, Nolwenn Lejoie. Um He also worked with Heather Nova, Prefab Sprout, and they were another one of those like bigger over in Europe than they ever were here in the U.S. So he'd worked with a lot of a lot of different artists, and uh, most notably on this album with Kate Bush. Her first foray into production was doing the onstage EP. Yeah, this was like her first full full length album that she's sitting in the producer's chair taking notes and making sure like how does this knob what does this knob do what does this do what does that do and all that fun stuff yeah, yeah. and you can see that well on display in the in the, in the tour of life documentary nationwide if mm-hmm. when you look up on youtube kate bush nationwide when they're interviewing her it's during the making of never forever and she's sitting in front of like all the dials and the knobs. So she's really sitting in that producer spot as they interview her. Oh, that's right. That is what's done after that. Yeah. I yeah, love because th- they're filming it they're, because they're filming it right after the tour. So she's recording never forever. And mm-hmm. they say, your show she's back in the studio. Oh yeah. Cause I haven't watched that one in a while. You're right. I know. I love seeing I that there like every week. <laughs> It's so inspirational. I have to watch it every week because she just like, it's very inspirational. She has that quote where they say, you know, where, what else is left for you? And she says, everything. Mm-hmm. I haven't even begun. So my heart melts and I, it's very inspirational. And the smile on her face, she's just like, like her eyes are like, like everything. <laughs> so pure. And then my, my other favorite moment, I don't want to get too off track. My other favorite, when the interviewer asks, 
so are you just going to, you know, settle down, get married, mm-hmm. have a baby? Like, would he ask Peter Gabriel that ever? No. But she dodges it very so well. She says, well, there's a possibility for that because I'm a human. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I love how she answers it. The humans just do what they do. Like, I love how she, she dodges it in such a clever way. Yeah, I know. You would never ask a dude that anyway. No. But yeah, so this went, this was released in September of 1980, sold 100,000 copies in the UK, so it went gold. Mm-hmm. It was released in the US. It came out on EMI America and then Harvest Records in Canada and placed well all over the world. So there was no uh, no worrying that her third album was going to make her go or anything like that. Good. It's what she deserves. And oh my gosh. We have to talk about the fact that it took this long for a female solo artist to enter the UK chart at number one. How did it take this long? What the hell? Very historically important because, I mean, firstly, and on the album that she co-produced at age 21. So it's just wild because when you think about British music, there are a lot of female artists or women artists. I don't want to say female, you know, but like woman artists who were hugely successful. So, like, the first that comes to mind to me is Dusty Springfield, huge mm-hmm. British icon, who more another person that I'm obsessed with that, that not enough Americans know about, because that's my fate, is to love people, British people that not enough Americans know about. Um, and you, I, I was shocked that, for example, Dusty Springfield had never had a number one album. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it took until 1980 for a solo female artist to have a number one album yeah. is really upsetting but also really awesome that it was her that did that. And it's really cool that it was this album and therefore even more disappointing that people overlook this album so much for me, at least because it's so historically, this is a historic moment in music history and that blazed the track of a path of women moving forward. But people don't really talk about this album very much in mm-hmm. any, like in Kate Bush discourse and everything. But it's hugely important. And yeah, it's like, how the hell did it take till 1980? Because there were plenty of other female pop stars. Mm-hmm. Although it's worth to mention that this was like the first studio album as a not a greatest hits compilation because there had been like yeah. Barbara Streisand and Connie Francis and Diana Ross who had number one UK albums, but they were compilations. And mm-hmm. they were, cre- and in the case of Diana Ross, it was credited to Diana Ross and the Supremes. Therefore, it wasn't mm-hmm. a solo album. So this was the first, like, studio album. But, yeah, like, how did it take this long? I don't understand. What? <laughs> and it's also cool that it was a British artist to do it. Because you would think maybe, I don't know, like, Aretha Franklin. So I don't know. Just, it, it's really shocking. But it is, that's the world. And, you know, speaking of, like, overlooking, I mean, yeah, a lot of people talk about this more as, like, a bridge album between her early and mid-career stuff, but I, you and I both agree this stands well on its own. I think of this as, like, her world music album. I mean, she'd, she'd had... I see that. She'd had uh, her brother, Patty, playing interesting instruments on her previous songs, but this one, like, each song has, like... Whether it's all we ever look for, sounds like there's a little bit of a harpsichord in there. Mm-hmm. And then on Egypt, of course, you've got the the really cool stringed instruments and some of the Moog synthesizers that are making it sound really, really cool. She's got uh, other other stringed instruments in Army Dreamers. Like each song has like almost folky instrumentation to it. 
mm-hmm. mixed in yeah, with I the Fairlight because yeah. she was starting to hang out with Peter Gabriel and going, ooh, cool toy, I want to play. <laughs> yeah, I think this album on its own is extremely distinct and unique. And even like if she had, even without, yes, it definitely does have aspects of it that make it a bridge between her earlier and later work. But I think that in and of itself has is such a rich piece of music and writing and every and vocals and everything that doesn't even that stands independently. I really the way you think of it as a world music album, which I think that's a good take. I would I kind of think that this is her most diva album. Mm-hmm. Um, there's well got to later in the diva trilogy, which is mm-hmm. like the middle kind of core <laughs> of the album where she just goes off. Oh and, yeah. But to me, this is the album where I think in terms of her, her vocals, it sounds the most like she's just doing a lot of Broadway stuff. And mm-hmm. in terms, I I just feel like when I listen to all her albums, this is the one where I'm just like this diva, you know? It's very diva vibes where she's just really going all. She's putting her entire heart into it and putting. I don't like to say people have balls because that's gender. There's a lot of a lot of guts, you know. She's it's just so gutsy. I think this is such a gutsy album. I mean, obviously the dreaming is really gutsy, but I don't think of it as like a diva album because of it's like this to me feels more diva ish in terms of vocal delivery and style. Cause that's, it's more theatrical and vocal delivery and style. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there are and parts of the compliment. Yeah. And there are, there are really parts of this that uh, when I first listened to it, it made me think of um, another British female artist I was into at the time, Sarah Brightman. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Brightman, uh, she was the wife of Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's the reason that Phantom of the Opera, the musical, even exists because mm-hmm. he wrote it for her. And he, he wrote other pieces for her as well. But the big one was Phantom of the Opera, which as of like 2018, this coming out, it's still running on Broadway in the West End. It's kind of mm-hmm. crazy. I went to see it in high school. And there are parts of like her Kate's vocal delivery that make me think of Sarah Brightman. And when I think Sarah Brightman, I think of somebody who's got a little bit of musical theater, who's got musical theater with a touch of opera training, but I wouldn't consider her an opera singer. But when I was listening Mm -hmm. to this album the first time in France, I went, this reminds me a lot of Sarah Brightman. And this is really cool because I I was really into Sarah Brightman at the time. That, That kind of Broadway delivery and oh, yeah. Definitely. And there's especially Broadway delivery in songs like a song like one that's probably my second favorite on the album, The Infant Kiss, which is very much just a character having a moment mm-hmm. in time. And so it's in the same way that a Broadway song is about a character and that moment and they are expressing what's happening some emotionally through that song. That's what I feel like a lot of this album feels like. Same with Wedding List. Same, yeah, a lot of it. And, you know, speaking of like kind of going all in and everything, the album cover. Oh, my goodness. Mm. That album cover, man. It's my favorite album cover of all time. And I'm biased because I'm a Kate fanatic. I don't even own a record player. So I don't have the space or money for for enough like to have a decent setup. But I own a bunch of vinyl records, including this one. And this one I always have whenever I've worked, like at every office I work at, I always have it in my office or my cubicle just to bring this like beauty and amazingness into my day every day. Mm-hmm. And I, cur- yeah, so it, this, I like, it's so important. And the, I also love not just the album cover, also the back of the album is picture. She photographs of her posing as a bat with her. Mm-hmm. T- <laughs> and so it's like, she literally, <laughs> and same with the, um, 
Christmas special performance violin, she takes mm-hmm. maybe the criticism of being called batshit insane and owns it literally, and at, because she's her and she's literal about everything. Oh my god, I never, th- I never thought of it that way. I like thinking of it that way. I I think, you know, (laughs) it's probably why she did dress as a bat. That completely makes sense. I mean, I don't even know if that's why, but I like thinking of it because she's, it's like, yep, I am literally batshit insane. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But I, yeah, this album cover is such a masterpiece. And it's funny because I don't really like his cover illustration, thinking about cover illustration of Tour of Life. That's what he first did. Oh, yeah, Nick Price. He did it. Yeah, like that thing where her eyes are like black, it's kind of creeps me out. I love this artwork and I love how her, she's had the inspiration for the, basically for those of you who you probably Google what it looks like, but if you're not familiar with the album cover, it's an illustration of her um, with her skirt flying up and there's like a variety of creatures we have under her skirt, both nefarious looking and friendly looking Mm -hmm. and just wide variety of creatures. So, and she apparently told Nick Price that, the inspiration, all her ideas come from under her. She said all her ideas come from under her skirt, which is pretty <laughs> hilarious. And it really, and it really also is another example. Like, so there's these monsters under her skirt, and it's an interesting take in how she uses music to, as then most in one dreaming, she's let the weirdness in, but mm-hmm. here she's literally letting the weirdness out. So in the, she channels that into her music, but then in her everyday life and interviews and everything, she's a little nice British girl. Yeah, it makes me think of Pandora's box, like the idea of like, I'm opening Mm. up this thing and letting out like, all sorts of creatures. I have no idea what's coming out of here. But we're just gonna go with it. And y'all have to go with me. And I think, yeah, and I think that reflects the sound and the mood and everything the album so well, too. Mm. It's just like, they're they're getting a lot of different so many different types of sounds and thrown Mm. at you that it does feel like just someone lift their skirt and whoosh, lots of monsters and different creatures coming out. I was actually really hoping to find Nick Price and go, hey, can you talk about what it was like to design these things for Kate Bush? But he seems to have all but disappeared from the internet. He had a website for a time. I could access it on the internet way back machine, but it was, I was unable to like click to contact him or anything. It got taken down. I'm like, oh man, that would be, cause it would have been really cool to add in like his thoughts too. Like, Hey, yeah. he got to make oh it God. and everything, but that's yeah, and there's, okay. oh, there's interest, if you go, if you search online, it's also interesting photographs, her brother that John Carter Bush took of her that were then used to make the illustration. They're also in the book, Kate inside the rainbow, a photo mm-hmm. book released in 2015. So it's interesting how they actually, he, he did use photographs to then draw from the illustration. And it's funny because in the photograph, she's wearing the same, this, the red floral dress that she's always wearing all the time, like in every oh, yeah. photo from that era. But then he changed it for the cover. Mm-hmm. And I could see in that picture, if it's, or at least there's one, uh, one I've seen it like that, where you can see a fan behind her. So you can see yeah. what they, they put on the fan. So the go whoosh under her skirt. You know, I really like that album cover. It's, it's, it, it feels very Kate. Very Kate. Yeah, it's my favorite. I think for me, like, I don't know, the the, the one for Never Forever is probably, it, it's definitely up there. I like most of her album covers. The only one I'm really not a fan of is 50 Words for Snow, but that's just because I think it looks a little boring. But that's just me. Oh, oh, I'm not a fan of the album cover because it's showing a woman making out with a snowman. Like, Kate, like, I, not to kink shame you, but oof. Anyways, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that, that song, Misty, and... No man sex, so, but wrong album. That's enough for another time. Indeed.
So the meaning of the title, um, she said that the title alludes to conflicting emotions, good and bad, which pass as she stated, quote, we must tell our hearts that it is never forever and be happy it's like that. So mature. Uh, Seriously. Well, this is from the same person who, who had that quote we used in the WOW episode. You know? Yeah, I was about to say, this reminds <laughs> me of the quote from 1978 that um, in the end, you're all you've got. Like, your families die, your friends die. So she's very much someone who thinks about the transience of relationships and of life, which is really fascinating. And according to Stu, I remember reading from it, Stuart even Arnold, one of her dancers said that they do talk, like that current, like now, and they're, they still talk, and like they talk a lot about spirituality and like Buddhist ideas. It's definitely very a Buddhist idea. And it's also interesting that there is no title track to this album. Well, yeah, well, that, that we ever will hear. <laughs> Yeah, but like because you apparently s- one was made, but and like but and like you said it, in in your in the notes here that it'll probably get released with the before the dawn DVD. It's <laughs> in never, <Okay>, never, <laughs> never forever, and in never forever will it ever be released. Literally, yes. <laughs> because maybe because she's so literal about everything, she's like, if I make a song from Never Forever, I must never forever release it. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like her. <laughs> yeah. So there were three singles from the album. There was Breathing, Babushka, and Army Dreamers. And Breathing, you've got some thoughts on Breathing here in the notes. Um, I, have a lot I, of I certainly have in my head. <laughs> yeah, which will definitely, I mean, I'll go more into it in the Breathing episode in a few mm-hmm. weeks. But this is my favorite song on the album. This is also one of my top three Kate Bush songs, which along with Night of the Swallow and Get Out of My House from the Dreaming. I love it to death. How, why would they? Why would this be a first single? This is a bizarre choice for a first single. I mean, it's deeply uncommercial, both in terms of lyrics and composition. Like last for the Lionheart episode, we were saying it's kind of Hammer Horror seemed kind of like an odd choice for a first single. But again, she's like, "Hold my beer, let me choose an even weirder first single." Like, just there's really nothing about this song that screams single at all. But I think at this point, because she'd had enough success, they were just like, "Kate." you can just pick whatever you want for the single. And I think it's really cool that she put that out as single. Also because it's really unusual to put out the final song um, mm. as a single because you kind of, then it's almost, I mean, I don't feel so, but it's kind of like the album's almost spoiled. It's like, you know how it's going to end. Whereas like for me, when I first listened to it, I was not born when this came out. So I hadn't heard Breathe. I just listened to the album as an album and having this come at the end was just like, whoa. You know, and I feel like if you've heard it before, that impact would be a bit diminished. And yeah. so I think then releasing Babushka, which then went to number five, was her biggest hit since Wuthering Heights, that was a smart move. And that would have made more choice as a first single. But I don't mean to insult breathing at all, because, again, one of my top three Kate Bush songs ever, which is saying a lot. But I was listening to to breathing yesterday if there's one thing i can say about kate bush and especially with given the subject matter on on this album in particular she came along at the right time i think for mm-hmm. more unconventional music to become popular i imagine if she were to come out now she would probably be occupying a space kind of like a similar to Joanna Newsom or somebody like that but that's yeah. a little bit more niche or even a there's another girl um uh nostalgia it's n o s t a l g 
yeah like nostalgia like goes really weird and everything and in a way her music reminds me a little bit of kate but not everybody knows who nostalgia is except that oh hey if you've seen john wick 2 you've actually heard her music because she plays (laughs) like partway through the movie she actually appears in the movie but i feel like if this were to come out now it would be more like a very niche thing it wouldn't be something that you would hear all over the radio especially like on american radio I'm going to go a step further and say that it wouldn't come out now because she is the person who made the people you mentioned for their types of autonomous women, like women, like women making their own music quite autonomously. She made that possible, especially with co-producing this album. So this album blazed the the path for that and Mm -hmm. her work and all her work in general. So she technically couldn't come out now because she's what made a lot of now's music possible. I mean, there are people who have said, like, without Kate Bush, like, Imogen Heap had a quote saying, like, Kate Bush is the reason why men took me seriously as a girl in the studio. Uh, Um, Makes sense. So, so I think, so yeah, so it's interesting, but it's stuff, but even I think Breathing is up to this point, her song that would, can be called the weirdest. Like, there's like, because I think. She gets called weird a lot, and that's very understandable. And I think, but I do think it tends on her first two albums. People mean that more in like her terms of her vocal delivery. I mean, Coffee Home Ground definitely is a very weird song. Mm-hmm. Um, but Breathing, I feel like, is a song. It's very prog rock, so it's not weird if you're used to prog rock. But I feel like that song is the one where, to a general audience, would be her weirdest work up to that point, which mm-hmm. is definitely not a bad thing. Yeah, it, that was your first single released uh, April fourteenth. 1980, and then Babushka, not even, uh, I guess, a little more than uh, two months later, June 27th, 1980, and then Army Dreamers with September 22nd, 1980. So it was released in pretty quick succession, a lot of those singles, and they all did really well. This is the, the album where the Fairlight starts to appear and gets used. Like, ooh, new expensive toy. Ooh, I want, I want to use it. He he he. Ta-da. Um, yeah, the Fairlight will will definitely come in more on the dreaming, but the Fairlight is was a way of recording sounds and sampling them and turning them into musical instruments. It was a very primitive way of doing something that I can easily do in Logic Pro X on my computer as we speak. Like, I actually have used, like, sampling, like, I've recorded my own voice and turned it into an instrument, much like the way that you could do it on the Fairlight, except that there's... Was a it was a big honking thing that cost like fifty thousand pounds in nineteen eighty. Yeah, and it What's had a, like a yeah. little floppy disk. Had a big floppy disk, and you had to use a special stylus in order to like do stuff on the screen. Like it was very primitive looking compared to what you can do now. But it was the first way that people could record smashing glass. Or any other yeah. weird noise and turn it well, into yeah. uh, a musical instrument. And, of course, Peter Gabriel was the first in um, in the UK to bring it to the UK. And she knew Peter because they were all in musical circles. And that's how she got to hear about it. Yeah. And it's funny because um, that's Peter Gabriel in the documentary, the BBC documentary, The Kate Bush Story. He says exactly what you just said. He says the things that we do on the Fairlight, you can just do on a phone today. 
Um, but I also want to, and you're not doing this, so I'm not accusing you of anything, but I definitely want to kind of dispel the myth that it's like, it's all Peter Gabriel. Like, I think there's a thing of like, oh, oh yes, she did discover the Fairlight because of Peter Gabriel, but she definitely made it her own. And she, she played, she like did everything, most of the stuff on it herself. So I think there's mm-hmm. this myth. It's like, you know, people just never want to give women the credit for production-based stuff. So it's like, oh, yeah, she learned about the Fairlight from Peter Gabriel and everything she knew about the Fairlight was from Peter Gabriel. It's like, no, she she went no. off. She learned about it from work from him, but then she went off and did something like very interesting on her own with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, because he, he, he did bring it to the UK and make it easy for for people to, to come in, in his studio and, and, like, see it. But... She she did get to play around with it on her own, and she had her producers and uh, she had a couple programmers who were helping her. Yeah, but she was one going, around. "Oh hey, really you know, it. yeah, well, how do I do this? What if I do this?" And da 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 da. It really this this album. It's not just for me. It's not just her world music, but it's also like the merging of acoustic with more electronic, and I absolutely love that kind Definitely. of combination. And I don't think it's a combination too. that too many people really venture into they're just like oh well it has to be acoustic like in some of the singer songwriter mm-hmm. circles i'm a part of like if anything is not a guitar they're like eh, kind of sort of thing dylan goes electric scandal and uh yeah bob dylan goes electric ah, it's not really folk music but i like i love the merging of the acoustic and the electronic on this album you get that even more on this album than you did the previous album Lionheart feels mm-hmm. very, still feels very acoustic and lush and and everything. This one has lush qualities to it, but there's more electronic and other sorts of things bubbling around under the Yeah. And then in, in context to the Dreaming, I like that this is more of a hybrid. I mean, I, Dreaming's not here, but I like that this is more of a hybrid, whereas the Dreaming is more of just the electronic. Oh, yeah. And this is more of a middle ground. That's why I find so interesting. So it's combining, it's really the best of... Like that vocally and musically, it's the best of both worlds. This week, Australia's biggest ever computer exhibition was held in Sydney. For three days, the display centre at Centrepoint was filled with silicon chips and floppy disks and liquid crystal display units. Now, for my money, the star of the show was this, the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument. It's $26,000 worth of electronic wizardry that's been developed over the last five years by Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel. Peter, show us the amazing things it can do. Well, here we're using a computer to actually generate the sounds that we hear. So instead of having vibrating strings or air columns like in conventional instruments, the computer generates the sound that we want. The the important thing is the ease with which the musician can define to the computer, this is the sort of sound I want, please make it for me. Now, to make that easy, we've created a light pen system, which is this device here, that allows you to draw directly onto this television screen the harmonic curves of right. the sound. Now, this is the picture of a sound. That's what the sound looks like to the computer, so that we know what, what sound the computer's thinking about. Would you like to show us what sound that well, is? Well, this particular spectrum sounds like this. Right. Well, now, how does a composer working with the CMI, the Fairlight, change that? Well, I might select to change one of these harmonics. So I've taken the fifth harmonic here and... I'm just working on that curve on its own, drawing a new one. So now that curve swells up towards the end there, and I'll make the tenth harmonic do a similar sort of thing. Now when I hit the compute command here, the computer's now thinking about the curves I've drawn here and calculating the sound that 
if fed into a spectrum analyzer, it would look like that, and that'll sound a bit different. You can hear the higher harmonics growing in the duration of the sound. And that's the kind of experimentation that a composer would engage in. But if he wanted a particular sound, the sound of a church bell or a trumpet or a violin, what does he do? Well, in those circumstances, we can simply plug a microphone into the machine and tell it, OK, computer, here's a sample of the sound that I want. See what you can do with it. So, for example, with the human voice, we can say, blah. And there's a picture of that blah. Right, right so that's, that's the trace of that. And you can then put that through the, the unit. Blah. 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 That's rather cute, isn't it? What about natural sounds? Um, if you want to get the sound of the sea oh. built into a... Um, a piece of music, something of that sort. I've got something here which is quite a good example of that. This is a, a group of natural sounds which were recorded by this technique, but then used in a musical sort of way. And this was done by a Sydney composer who was writing a piece for an experimental theatre work which, in which the scene was someone making a cup of tea. And it had to be reminiscent of making tea and also be music at the same time to fit in with the whole thing. Right. So what the machine is loading now is the sounds of making tea. We've got first of all pouring water. Then we'll throw the spoon in. Stir it around a bit. And, and you can play those sounds like a piece of music. Right, they're pitched to the keyboard. Or you can have them simultaneously. That's rather delightful. And I agree with you about this being um, one of her, probably her best album vocally, because I still really like it when she sounds Ooh, really like high nice. and pure. I really do. Yeah. Whereas in her later albums, I can tell that she seems to be pushing a little bit more, probably because she's smoking and that's really not very good for your voice. But um, this one, she still sounds like really pure. And I, and I like that about her voice. Yeah, I'm glad to find someone who agrees with me on that. Cause I like never have found anyone who thinks that this is her best vocal album ever, never, forever. Mm, indeed. <laughs> How many bad puns are gonna make? Probably quite a few throughout the season, but that's okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially when it's a pussy queen, but you know. So as far as the like, critical reception goes, it seems to have been very favorably received, which was a nice change from Lionheart, where everybody was like, this is an appeal imitation, and kind of sort of stuff. There... It's like your critic voice. <laughs> That's my bad critic voice. I mean, there was one... It's like those guys on Sesame Street. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, there was one really critical review of her in Record Mirror, where somebody said that, quote, <laughs> this was... One of the so most funny. empty, dull packets of poop one could ever hope to avoid. I'm not into scatological anything, but I, pr- I don't really feel like you can call poop empty. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so just, that's, just, oh, that's just not very good writing right there. No, and, and I have to admit, when I, when I go and look up some of these older reviews of Kate's music, it really seemed like it was more about the personality of whoever happened yeah. to be reviewing it yeah. than it was like reviewing how the merits of whatever they're supposed to be reviewing. Completely, completely. It's not that much different than some of these talk shows that you go on to and it's, they have guests on there, but it's more about, oh, I'm Ryan Seacrest. I'm going to be such and such because I'm Ryan Seacrest. And it's not so much about the mm-hmm. guests. 
No, I completely agree. Like I've read, also read a lot of reviews from the era, and they're definitely mostly they seem to be more about not just the personality of the of the reviewer, but also the personality of the publication. So, like certain publications that were on the punk side that were just kind of anti Kate by nature, were just like they were. There's one interview with her. I can't remember off top. I have it in my bookshelf somewhere. So I have this like book with all her interviews where he's just being mean to her from the get go and making like being dismissive from the get-go in his review because it's for a magazine that like that her their agenda is going to be opposite of what she does so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and then somebody else uh oh sounds i mean they were kind of critical too but not nearly as much as you know calling it an empty dull packet of poop which is not the case at all oxymoron um yeah uh this album smells As the sound said, this album has been a long time in the making, but I'm not sure that this is always a good thing. Um, long time in the making, what? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to laugh. <laughs> you gotta be kidding, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, um, he learned, he will, you will learn about a long time in the making soon. Soon enough. Um, Melody Maker was much more enthusiastic. I mean, Melody Maker tended to be a little more enthusiastic when it came to Kate Bush's music anyway. Any doubts that this is the best Bush album yet are finally obliterated by the inspired unorthodoxy of the production. I had to look and see if Steve Lillywhite wasn't at the controls. It's that clean and fresh. That's nice. Yeah, just in contem- contemporary evaluations of her work, because I read a lot of stuff that like they'll be like, just talk about her work as a whole and her legacy as an artist. Despite the positive views of the time, it's pretty much always unfairly overlooked or discussed the predecessor to Dreaming and Hounds of Love. It's just mm-hmm. like only mentioned as the one that went to number one, if that's even mentioned. And that's pretty much it. You know, people don't really talk about it as a piece of music, just more as a piece of history. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a big shame and which this project is helping to change. Hopefully. Indeed. Well, because my, my idea is I'm trying to make a historical record and just talking with yeah. people about her music because there's so much stuff. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. She she actually said quite a bit about the album, especially like the behind the scenes of it, which I think is really awesome. Yeah, because I love this is this back in the days when she actually used to communicate with fans, so we have yeah. stuff. <laughs> it, the first stages happened the summer of 1979. Uh, quote: When I actually decided to be brave enough to go ahead and produce with John Kelly, trusting him as a friend and an extremely talented engineer. So with that settled, we produced our first master tapes. We put down Blow Away, Egypt, Violin, and The Wedding List at Air Studios with the bright and bubbly John Jacobs as assistant. As you will see, besides communication, Johns are also a theme of the album. Never a day passed without at least two or three Johns popping in to say hello. And as the album grew, so did the number of Johns, (laughs) reaching a total of 15, turning up on the last day, all in the same room. A fatal move to say, John? (laughs) Must be why her brother went by Jay. Seriously. Having been rehearsed with the band for two, two days, the tracks went down and our first productions with the help of ideal musicians were a success. All the tracks full of air and space. John's and T. Of course, T. Mm-hmm. Early this year, we moved into studio number two, Abbey Road, the land of Beatles, T's, Smiles and Sticky Buns, where we met another bright and bubbly John, John Barrett. 
John became an important part of the album and completed a threesome like Teddy with Andy Pandy and Loopy Lou, John Kelly and myself. I like this here. as She says, I would always use a notepad with each page designated to a song, each song needing various instruments, effects, harmonies, etc., which I would list and tick off appropriately. This helps my memory, which keeps some kind of logical working order. Thanks to dear Andrew Powell, where I learned the necessity for a prods pad. I totally do that yeah, with my own music. Cool. Like I'll That's awesome. Although mine is more like within the, the digital audio workstation I work in and so like I will make a note for whatever track. Like I'll go, um re record this part at 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 whatever time stamp or maybe add this maybe add more of a compressor here. But of course mine's all like on the computer, but I totally like keep track of like what I need to do and stuff like that. So I'm totally with you, Kate, on that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she just talks about like putting down all the backing tracks and then all the overdubs, including vocals and quote, and then to mix the responsibility of her. Pr- interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Interesting thing about her putting, no, just interesting thing about her putting backing text first. The first thing that came to mind is in the background vocals of um, Infant Kiss. So like there's one side of the get too much in the background. So it's interesting to think about her recording that before the main vocal because like how did then you know where to place? Like it's interesting that she had because the backing vocals on all her songs as in previous albums are basically singing their own songs. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that she would record the backing track first and then layer the other stuff together. It was almost, it's almost like mashing two songs together. Mm-hmm. Well, I know for me when I, when I go to record my own stuff that I... I generally do the main vocals first and then I kind of yeah, figure out like the harmonies. Are. Yeah, I figure out the harmonies around that. Like I'll be I'll be like kind of listening to okay, I hear I'm doing this F minor chord in this pad and so I'm kind of mm, I'll try and come up with something around mm-hmm. that and and like go in and do and, and record that way. Uh, sometimes I have recorded the harmonies first, but I tend to get really thrown off with the main melody because I'll be listening to the backing vocals and I want to sing with them. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm supposed to sing here. But yeah, that is and really yeah, I think it makes logically more sense to record main vocals first. So it's really interesting that she doesn't. Uh, see, uh, the responsibility as a producer was something I felt a great deal. You have to keep on top of everything, and sometimes it can be difficult. It's hard to push people you love. Talking and drinking are easy to give into, but the trouble sometimes was we were having too much fun. Um, yeah, and that speaks a lot to the close knit family style in which she tends to work well, mm-hmm. with the same people often, such as Del Palmer's engineer and and the same and Alan. Um, Alan, Alan Murphy. Um, Alan Murphy, yeah, as the guitarist. So she kind of works in this very hermetically, like this style where she's hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world. And being a co-producer and then a full producer enabled that separation from like my work from the real world. And mm-hmm. then especially after she built her own studio for Hounds of Love. And now, now the way she works is she has a home studio is she's really like out there on her own. And so I think that definitely enables the possibility of them to just get caught up having fun instead of making an album or like, I mean, let's Kate, you haven't put out an original work since you were snow. Like you're having too much fun. Come on. Time's up. <laughs> yeah. And especially like back then. And even now, like when you go into a music studio, even something that's not like Abbey road or something like that, you are paying by the hour and you have to mm-hmm. really go in there and know exactly 
what you are doing, how you're going to record because you're, you're paying by the hour. So you don't have a whole lot of time to just kind of sit around and experiment. She, after she built her own studio, Kate felt like she could take as much time as she needed and just really experiment and just probably go into the studio one day and just go, okay, what happens if I do, what if I do this little random thing that came to me in a nightmare or something like that? It's like, she just kind of like follows her own little trail. Yeah, that's true. That's but, true. But also when she was when she was kind of writing her her first songs, it was very much like something she kept to herself and within the family. So it doesn't surprise me that she likes to work in such a close-knit family style mm-hmm. way with her music. Because it's just, oh, family. When I think of fam- music, I think of family and it makes me feel happy. It makes me feel at ease. And Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes we were having too much fun. Uh, we would always we always work until the early hours in the studio. It's a very creative time, and with Roy Harper and Sky working at Abbey Road too, we were rarely alone and felt very at home. However, discipline did exist, so all was completed with care and tender hearts. I really deeply appreciated the understanding and respect from all the musicians, and after all, I am only little, a female, and an unlikely producer. But as I squirmed mm. and contorted my way through explanations of visuals and audios, they stood patient, calm and open, and not one uttered, you weirdo, unless in jest. Without everyone and the Fairlight, mm. it would have never been the same. You move me. Thank you. Your inspiration. From the Cape Bush Club, issue 7, September 1980. Retreat from Gaffa.org, of course. That's cute. Even she's like underestimating herself because she's a woman. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I realized that as I was reading it. I was going, oh, wow. Yeah. <gasps> Yeah, Roy Harper. We're, we're going to get to see him for um, probably the last song I do of this season is going to be the collaboration she did with him and David Gilmour for Roy Harper's song, You. And, of course, she, mm-hmm. she covered Another Day with Peter Gabriel, which, as of the recording of this, was just released that day. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, she ended up working with him quite a bit. I, I honestly had never heard of him until I started really digging into her stuff. Like, okay, who's this Roy Harper dude? Okay. Like well, Joanna up. Newsom he, like worked with him once too at some oh, point. Really? So it's an interesting connection, or or he or they commuted. I don't know. I know there's some connection, so it's really interesting because like he's helping my girls through the ages. Mm-hmm. Helping all the really cool females. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what she's had to say about the album. Like, it sounds like it was a really honestly sounds like a it was a fun album to make, and with her like getting to try to in the producer's chair to to do a little bit more of her own thing i feel like there's just a sense a whole sense on this album of her like oh yay i can do a little bit more stuff okay woohoo we're going there you know when you read about the making of the dreaming it sounds much more really laborious and taxing and draining experience whereas this mm-hmm. seemed more like a fun experience oh definitely with the with the dreaming part like i get the impression that it was like she kind of went into the studio for a few months, uh, ate lots of chocolate, had lots of Chinese takeout, smoked a lot of weed, came up with interesting stuff. And it was just like, I have no idea what else is going on in the world. I'm just entrenched in this. Very, very, like, cut off from everybody. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Oh, so we kind of started talking a little bit about like our personal thoughts on the album. I mentioned that it's my second favorite Kate album. I can hear her trying more things. There, there are more rhythmic textures, a lot less piano than there were on the Kick Inside and Lionheart. 
there's still beautiful piano like in Babushka that's you know the piano that opens and then of course in Delius Mm -hmm. which is oh my Delius is my absolute favorite song on the album so I'm gonna have a really hard time keeping that one down to an hour because oh I love that song so much it's one that really it really grew on me a lot it has to grow on me but it's growing on me a lot I really love it well it's more of a mood piece it it's not right it's not something that's really heavy on the lyrics it's more about like the atmosphere and then her just like random syllables of words and stuff like that yeah and that's okay because I, I, I like that it's almost like proto well cocteau twins were openly inspired by kate bush mm-hmm. but there's almost some cocteau twins in that oh definitely oh for sure yeah like when you're in that song in particular yeah, there's uh, I'm kind of talk about how I think of it's kind of like her world music album because she, she puts many foreign sounds into the music more than I think she's done at this point. There's the babushka with the east got an eastern flavor. She's got the strummed zatars and Delius. She's got these unusual harmonies in night scented stock. She's got an Irish mm-hmm. drum in Army Dreamers. Just like. All sorts of interest. Every song is different. No one song sounds exactly like the next one. And you just kind of go with her on this really cool journey. I found this album when I went to France. I bought it along with Lionheart. So hearing this album reminds me of being in France. Um, Lionheart a little bit more so for me than, than this one. But I still remember like being in trance. I was you know, sitting on the bus going to Mont Saint-Michel and listening to Delia's Song of Summer, which was a cool song to listen to when I was looking out the window yeah. and it was snowing. It was snowing out there. Oh, wow. That would <laughs> and be I'm thinking, cool. oh, I'm listening to a song about summer. Yeah, I wish that we're warm right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, it, it's kind of like wintry, though, the, the sound of it. So, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Like Bjork's routine in a way. And of course, oh, well, we'll get into like some of the other things with the album, like uh, <laughs> like her dressing as a swan for Dealey. Speaking of York. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, first, y'all. Yeah, that she did. Um, and yeah, you, you touched on a lot of your thoughts. You, you say here in the notes that this album is everything and they, your underrated child you will defend to the death. <laughs> yes, it is my underrated child I'll defend to the death. And it's my third favorite album of all time. Stop saying a lot. My favorite albums of all time are The Marble Index by Nico, The Dreaming by Kate Bush, and then Never Forever by Kate Bush. So, yeah, so I think that this is her strongest album vocally because we get the high pitch of early Kate and the muscularity of later Kate, and she's pushing herself vocally and musical musically to often wild extremes. So, for example, Violin, I, I, I really like it. It's not, objectively, it is not a great song. I'm very thankful it exists that we have on record how far the human voice can push itself to the, such extremes mm-hmm. um just like that song in itself is like a record of just what the human voice is capable of and that's really fascinating and now it's, sure. you say that this album has your two favorite kate bush vocal moments of all time yeah, and there's one that you mentioned in your notes earlier that I almost forgot the use of the Rudy in, in oh, Wedding yeah, List. I do love that. But there's another moment in it that I love even more, where she goes, on the heel of my booty. Yeah, the way she says that is just, um, and she also, I like that when she performed it live two years later at the Prince's Trust concert, even though her voice was deeper, she still did it. Mm. And I love that note so much. But um, 
So yeah, while I understand that many, why many critics call it the bridge album, it's so rich as a work of art in its own right. And like any, for me, okay, my personal opinion is any album that opens with Babushka is automatically one of the best albums ever. If this <laughs> album was Babushka 10 times in a row, it would still be one of the best albums ever. And I am standing by that. Like, this, like an album that is just Babushka 10 times in a row is still better than most, than most music. And my two favorite Kate Bush vocal moments of all time well, I don't know, I, I put in the exact times so that you can find them and put them in. <laughs> but um, so my two favorite vocal moments of, all, of her entire body of work are um, when she's in, on, at two minutes, 39 seconds in Blow Away. It's a very long shout. It's like a it's a stretched out note slash shout. I can't really describe it because, again, she just is like going yeah, beyond. It's, it's a minutes. belt. It, it really is. Yeah. It's just whatever it is. It's just it's just incredible. But so that's my second favorite moment. And my number one favorite drum roll. My number one favorite Kate Bush <laughs> vocal moment of all time is at 22 seconds in and the infant kiss. No control. Or as I can, I'm not going to try, but she is like, no, ah, control. It's just, it's, I, it's just, again, she's just stretching out every syllable to the maximum possible length. And gosh, on that song in particular, in that note, I just never, that blows my mind. I just like, I, that is just beyond diva wild. <laughs> I love it. Like the fact that she w- turns the word, the word no into like a tent, like, into that is mind-blowingly wonderful and my favorite vocal moment in her entire discography. Side two of the album is stronger than side one. Side two is just epic. So side two, if you're a nerd vinyl trainer, or or Mm -hmm. has to if you're not listening on vinyl, which starts with the wedding list. Now, okay, so that's what I call Diva Trilogy. Mm -hmm. It's the wedding list, violin, and the infant kiss. To me, that's like the heart of the album. So those three songs where she's just completely embracing the batshit crazy everything, where she's pushing herself vocally, she like so hard and or not pushing herself, it doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't, she is pushing herself, but it doesn't sound like effort, if that makes sense. But even on violin, mm-hmm. she's really pushing her voice to extremes, but it does not feel like it's hard for her to do. It seems like it mm-hmm. comes naturally and that's what's so amazing about it. But on those, like that, core trilogy the, the diva trilogy is what makes me even though none of those three songs are my favorite on the album that's what makes me love this album so much because it shows how fucking gutsy she is like mm-hmm. this the diva trilogy is just i feel like that's like her manifesto of saying i'm extreme i am out there i am weird i am wild and you are just going to have to deal with it and she went to number one and mm-hmm. so I think that what, and so that her, that Diva trilogy for me, it really exemplifies her appeal, even though it went to number one, her appeal to freaks and outcasts of the world. Because especially in America where she's not big, the people I meet who do tend to know who she is are on the weirder side, usually the goths and the gays. And mm-hmm. I'm both, so you know. So despite it being a number one album, this is deeply weird and bold and brave of her. And so I love the Diva trilogy for that. I'll always call it the Diva Trilogy.
Well, thank you as always for for being here to introduce this album. Yay! It's always great to talk to another fan who appreciates this album. You know. So. Yes, I could not. I couldn't appreciate it more. I mean, I guess I could if it was a dreaming, but honestly, they're pretty <laughs> neck and neck for me. Like there are days where I think I might even like Never Forever more. So it's 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 yeah. I really I this. I mean, it's my third favorite album of all time. So that's saying, and as, as a music fanatic, that's saying a lot. Indeed, and another music fan and fanatic here too, of course. We'll see everybody next week for the first song episode of this season, which will be all about Babushka. And I've got three fans. I put out a call. I put out a call for for fans to talk about other songs on Never Forever. And I got three people. So we're going to get to hear from three different people talking about how much they love Babushka and digging into the lyrics. And it's going to be awesome. Can I wait to talk with you? Can I say one thing about Babushka before you get into it? Sure. This is important to mention. Okay. From a Jewish person's perspective. So, like, that song, it's really funny. Like, so she got the name Babushka because it was the name of a cat of a friend of hers, apparently. And she's like, oh, I just like the way that sounds and, like, Russian folklore. But it's the Yiddish word for, like, for, for, like, grandma. Mm-hmm. So it's really funny as it show as it's someone with Jewish heritage, like to listen to that song and she spelled it not, she, she spelled it wrong. It's B A D U S H K A, not the way she spelled it. So it's really funny because it's like she's butchering Yiddish. Um and like, oh girl, you are so not, you're a go what would we call a goy. You're such a you're such a shiksa. That's like the <laughs> the Yiddish term for like a non Jewish woman. Like mm-hmm. such as the shiksa is like butchering the Yiddish. But it's funny because like I remember my mom who one point was like asked if Kate Bush was Jewish and I was like, No, she just called the song that <laughs> <laughs> And I'd always thought of babushka as because I know in Russian that a bab- babushka, not babushka, but babushka is also a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah, but it's also like the head wrap, like, like when you wrap mm-hmm. around your head, like you're wearing a babushka because it's so it's associated with like grandmas. So it's the so to me, babushka is hilarious because unknowingly she's kind of making like a sexy story out of like the most unglamorous sexy thing ever, which is like old women wearing scars on their heads old russian ladies indeed <laughs> which is like, like my entire family basically like it's really funny but i feel like the jewish perspective on babushka is one that does not get heard a lot so there it is <laughs> there you go well as always thank you so much for talking with me about this album and we'll be talking with you for for a couple other songs on this album yay yes we will looking forward to it If you have a favorite Kate Bush song or even a couple of songs that you would love to talk about for a future episode, you can contact me either on Twitter at StrangeKateCast. You can like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kate Bush Podcast. And lastly, you can just go on ahead and email me, kbcast at linkmedia.com. That's link with an E. See everybody next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.